Some of the largest, most well-equipped hospitals in the nation are here in New York, but the onslaught of critically ill coronavirus patients tested them like never before. You know, one death is one death too many. And there were more deaths on a daily basis than probably any of us had seen. And That's when uh, we realized that we were in a world of trouble. Yes, this is a terrible thing that we all went through, but at the same time, because we went through it, we're stronger because of it. It's really apparent that COVID has been an enormous catalyst for change. There are 62 acute care hospitals in New York City. That's more than the total number of hospitals in some states. Many belong to the most well-known and advanced hospital networks in the world. 11 make up the city's Health and Hospitals Corporation, public hospitals. A few are standalone independent health care centers that have served their communities for over a century. The doctors and nurses who work at those hospitals have a level of experience and expertise that is matched in very few cities around the world, yet nothing prepared them for the crisis they faced at the peak of the pandemic here. The lessons they learned are resulting in changes that will impact health care in this city and across the nation for generations to come. But it's a work in progress. I'm Steve Kastenbaum, and this is New York Gritty, a podcast about the resiliency of New Yorkers in times of crisis. It was certainly unlike any other experience that we had had before. It grew exponentially. So before you can even wrap your brain around the fact that, hey, that line's getting long, that line was five blocks long, and there were people that it just never stopped. My name is John Ferrara. I am the vice president of operations at the Brooklyn Hospital Center. This is a unique facility. It's not part of a large hospital network. It's not part of the public hospital system. It's an independent, standalone hospital here in Brooklyn. That's correct. Um, it obviously comes with a lot of challenges, not having that type of uh, infrastructure of support financially or from the state. Uh, we struggle to maintain our independence. Um, that's our, our immediate goal. Uh, it's important to us to, to be the staple of the community. We've been here for 176 years. We just uh, celebrated our 175th anniversary last year. And again, uh, being able to operate and become financially viable and continue to fulfill the obligations of our mission statement and being the resource for the downtown community of Brooklyn uh, is not short on challenges. Uh, and we are trying our best to remain independent in, in the current climate. Overnight, it was like putting out a grease fire as this pandemic spread here. There was just no way to put out the flames. I am very cautious to assimilate anything to war. I'm not a, a man of service. I know that um, our great army vets and stuff can, can attest to what they are. But in my experience, it's the closest thing I've ever seen to that. There were times where you would take a step back and, and survey the emergency department with what is normally a chaotic, organized chaos to begin with. But this was unlike anything we've ever seen where people were coming in sick and then people started coming in really sick and then people weren't making it out. It, we were just overloaded. I mean, at, at every capacity, I looked and I saw heroism in every feat from, a, from every clinician that was down there, from the environmental service people that put all of their health and safety on the line, all the support services infrastructure. It was all hands on deck. Um, and like many other organizations, we found out every day what the new challenges were going to be. And there really wasn't a lot of time to, to plan for these things. It was a very reactionary um, time frame for us. The human toll of this pandemic came into full view for many Americans through the lens of the experience at the Brooklyn Hospital Center and a sobering viral video. 
this is for real. My hand is shaking because it's hard to look at this right here, what I'm seeing right now. It's hard to believe this. But y'all, this is for real. Someone recorded the scene as body bags containing coronavirus victims were being loaded into refrigerator trucks parked on the street. Temporary morgues like that appeared at hospitals across the city overnight. Please stay inside. That was unfortunate, but again, I think that it, I think it exemplifies. It's hard. It's really hard. I don't think uh, people in your field have had time to really think about what they've been through because they're still in the midst of it. Yeah, Steve, you know, we lost our own too, you know, and then you see it's, it's not something that any of us, you know, want to remember or think about, but I think it's important because that was a really dark time. Um, I've never handled anything like that before. There were times I could tell you, Steve, I didn't know how to lead through that. That's the hardest thing that I can tell you. How do you look people in the face that had just lost their colleagues and ask them to gown up and get up into these trucks just to decant the morgue every single day? Um, It it was the light in the darkest times. I mean, these these guys are my heroes. The, The people that I led, I admire with every inch of my soul. So I got up on those trucks. I didn't have to, but I felt like there was no other way. I mean between you and I, I had to. There's, I, I can't send somebody up there naked. We, we were there together, and then I, I give nothing but kudos and admiration to the patient transport team here, their director, and the brave souls that every day went up there and did the job that nobody wanted to do. The nation as a whole wasn't prepared for anything like this as far as, you know, there were concerns, although we never got to that point. There were concerns that we have enough of the resources we needed? Does the country have enough of the resources we needed? I'm Stu Kessler. I'm the director of the emergency department at Elmhurst Hospital. I'm the clinical lead, one of two clinical leads for emergency medicine in the Health and Hospitals Corporation. I'm also an associate professor and a vice chair of the Department of Emergency Medicine at the Icon School of Medicine, the Department of Emergency Medicine at Mount Sinai. Dr. Kessler, um, Elmhurst Hospital was in the news a lot during the pandemic uh, for for reasons that I'm sure you you actually wish it wasn't. It was it was at the epicenter of the epicenter during the height of the pandemic here in New York. Can you just remind us here, refresh our memories, uh, tell the listeners what was it like at Elmhurst Hospital day after day, and and take us from when you first started seeing coronavirus patients to the point where suddenly the hospital was almost bursting at the seams with people who were suffering with COVID nineteen. So I just want to set it up a little bit that, you know, Elmhurst Hospital, along with all the hospitals and health and hospitals and all the hospitals in New York City have always, you know, planned for disaster management, have always planned for mass casualty incidents. We've always drilled on these things and we've always taught people how to wear PPE and and made sure that everybody's comfortable with that. And I think you know, everyone in the city and the state and the country and maybe the world thought that they were prepared for, you know, any possible problems. We had drilled for, you know, what if a patient with Ebola came in and we were always planning for these kinds of situations. But I think this was different than anything anybody had ever imagined or planned for. I don't think anybody thought that what happened 100 years ago would would or could happen again, certainly not in the United States. So, 
what we saw initially was a few people that came in and we wanted to figure, you know, the thought was maybe they could have COVID, but probably not. And we had some limitations to our ability to test people initially. And so, you know, we saw people and we sent them home and thought that, you know, the person that came in with a, with an upset stomach and diarrhea and some fever probably had some kind of a GI run of the mill viral illness. We realized that some of the patients that we had been seeing turned out to have COVID. And, and the way that sort of worked was our waiting room gradually started to fill with people that were not that sick, but lots and lots of people coming in with this, with similar, some of them with very similar complaints, respiratory complaints, cough, a little shortness of breath, fever, sore throats, loss of sense of smell or taste. And we've never seen that many patients coming in all together at one time over the course of one or two or three days. And then what we quickly realized was that in fact, COVID was here and was everywhere in our community. And the volume of patients kept increasing, but what also happened was the severity of their illness kept increasing. Mm -hmm. And soon we started to see a tidal wave of patients who were critically ill. And, you know, we're pretty well first in being able to take care of most patients who are critically ill, but I don't think anybody expected the volume of critically ill patients and that it wasn't going to be one day or two days of, of a lot of critically ill patients. It was going to be weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks of critically ill patients with a contagious illness that not only put the patients at, at great risk and, and in danger, but also put the staff at risk and danger. And the patients had an illness that no one really knew how to treat. For the first time in my life, I was really frightened. I mean, this is what we train for. You know, ICU nurses, ICU uh, physicians, or, I, you know, we've all trained for this all, our, all of our lives. We've treated patients who have ARDS. But when I saw that they weren't getting better, it frightened me. My name is Ruth Levy. I'm a critical care nurse practitioner. And during the height of the pandemic, I worked in the COVID ICU at the Mount Sinai Hospital. So within one day, I just remember admitting 10 severely critically ill patients. And um, it was one of the hardest days of my life. If anything, I nearly collapsed because um, we didn't have at that time um, the manpower to handle this. Um, but then when we realized what we were getting into, everyone came. Everyone came to the rescue. Um, you know, frontline providers from out of state. We had in-hospital uh, physicians, nurses deployed to all the different ICUs. When we realized it was bad, we approached it like, you know, this is a war. This is a war. This is a war for our way of life. We need to, we need to protect it. And the only way we're going to do this is if we need, we have a team. We have, you know, a uh, a whole team that can help us get through this. In this campus, we actually, uh, counting the patients in Central Park, had 770 patients at the peak. My name is David Rich. I'm a cardiac anesthesiologist here at Mount Sinai Hospital, who has been the president and chief operating officer of the hospital since 2013. There was a lot of effort going into attacking 
this virus on a lot of different fronts at the time, right here at Mount Sinai. Well, correct. Many, many of the clinical scientists and the basic scientists, and I will also add the data scientists, all came together to help us perform research at lightning speed. And I'm extremely proud of a few specific developments. One of them was that our clinical uh, teams were starting to notice excessive clotting of the blood mm -hmm. in some of the patients with COVID-19. Mm -hmm. And I believe we were one of the first centers in the, in the world to develop a protocol for using drugs that prevent clotting uh, as a potential therapeutic in the treatment of COVID-19. And by the middle of April, we had developed such a protocol. And it was only because of the data scientists coming together with the clinical scientists that we were able to demonstrate in an analysis of the patients that we had treated that those who receive the blood thinning drugs, these drugs that prevent coagulation, were doing better than those who had not received it. And there have been many studies now worldwide that have gone on demonstrating that this is in fact a, a real effect. But at the moment in time when we were racing to care for COVID patients, we did not uh, do um, uh, what are described as prospective randomized trials. We had to develop protocols on the fly so that uh, treatments like convalescent plasma, which turned out later to be not a, as effective as we'd hoped, uh, and treatments like uh, anticoagulation, which turned out to be highly effective, uh, were all being trialed in real time to see that we could do the best that we could for our patients. This really is a unique setting. This is pretty amazing where we are. I feel very lucky. Why don't you tell everybody who you are and where we are? <laughs> My name is Mark Fennig. I'm an emergency medicine physician. I've been working as an attending emergency physician here in New York for over 10 years, and we're currently sitting together on the roof of my trawler, a 40-foot boat here in the Hudson River. Uh, the sun is setting, and there's people in the park, and uh, spring is in the air. Spring is in the air, and this is quite the welcomed relief for anybody who has pandemic fatigue. Yeah, I think part of the strategy of getting this boat was escaping the chaos of the day-to-day -day emergency department and uh, coming home to a serene environment. And this really, this was a really helpful place to go after shifts um, dealing with COVID. You're one of only a few people in all of New York City whose home address is actually a boat. Yeah, I think there's uh, less than 10 of us in the whole state that live full-time 12 months a year on boats, and I have uh, the best neighbors in the world. After COVID settled into the city and we started seeing the beginning of a surge of cases, it became immediately apparent that people that had more elbow room in their homes or even a second home had the benefit of escaping the density of the city and significantly lowering their risk of exposure. Um, a lot of the patients that were pouring into the emergency department um, were a lot of frontline workers or cashiers, people that didn't have the ability to not share a bathroom with four family members or not show up to work the next morning. Tell me again the hospital that you were working at at the time and, and still work at now. I work at one of the Montefiore Medical Centers in the Bronx. Uh, I work at the Weiler Division. And that hospital serves what type of community? 
Uh, it serves a pretty diverse patient population. There's uh, plenty of patients who come to the emergency department who are insured and have access to primary care doctors and medications. Uh, there's also a lot of patients who come to our emergency department who don't have insurance, have very limited access to medical care and medications. There were times when we just had so many patients that we had to squeeze the beds uh, immediately next to each other. Um, and if you have such a long row of beds that are all touching each other, um, if someone's in trouble in a middle bed, you can imagine how much time it would take to go to the very first bed and move it over just six or 12 inches and do that with each other bed just so you can squeeze in between these patients. And some of those patients had, had even passed away um, just minutes before and we'd be moving a lot of patients, a lot of bodies, just to get access to the folks who were really sick. And um, that's what doing the best we could do looked like for, for a difficult period of time. I hear things like that and I return back to that moment in time when, when doctors, nurses, and other healthcare staffers were just completely traumatized by what they were witnessing. When the second surge came along um, a, few, a, a couple of months ago, um, and we suddenly got a couple of really sick young patients. Uh, a lot of us, uh, you know, uh, panicked uh, just briefly for a few minutes, and it brought back a lot of um, feelings, emotions we had during the surge a year ago. Um, some feelings that uh, I think a lot of us didn't even realize we were harboring. What were those feelings? Um, I, it's hard to describe. It's um, it's it's this it's kind of terror or impending doom. Um, it's um, it's this feeling that sometimes you have to give to a patient when you find out that they have a terrible diagnosis like cancer, and to have someone really young who just a day or two before was up and doing their daily living and suddenly is in front of you and looks really sick and may not come out of the hospital alive. Um, that. That same delivering of awful news to a family member, it's just, um, it's just a, a horrible experience. So what did you learn from that experience? What did people in your position learn about the healthcare system here in New York? Well, what, one of the things that became really clear to us was, um, was how once infected with COVID, uh, it it really didn't matter what kind of socioeconomic status you came from. And a lot of times there's other medical conditions, um, even certain cancers or other infections, um, uh, even other surgical problems uh, where people could get different types of care depending on, uh, you know, the nature of their insurance or wealth or hospital that they go to. Um, however, the patients that got COVID and were critically ill, um, uh, whether they were really wealthy um, or had no insurance at all, um, at least the ones in my hospital, um, they got the same kind of care and, um, and they, they, uh, they often uh, died uh, when they were critically ill. Um, it, it, made it, it made it really clear that um, that disease and healthcare um, uh, transcends socioeconomic statuses at times, and the standard of care 
um, should should obviously be such that we, we don't pay attention to those uh, socioeconomic differences. And, we, you know, we have the benefit in the emergency department to uh, often ignore um, and com- be completely blind to the kind of insurance or wealth that a patient has when they come into the emergency department. You know, a stroke victim could be a CFO of a large corporation or um, or uh, a homeless person. And uh, we would deliver the same kind of stroke care to them um, uh, when they arrive to the emergency department. And COVID was like that, but in a really big way. And it really opened everyone's eyes to our responsibility. It's part of the reason why um, a lot of us, when we realize that um, we have a responsibility to care for everyone and care for everyone equally, um, we started paying attention to uh, the disparities that exist outside the hospital. Um, in particular, a lot of us started paying attention to the disparities that exist in prisons, um, especially in New York City and state prisons where a lot of um, incarcerated people got hit hard with COVID and um, you know they're in a congregant living environment and don't have the option to protect themselves the way um, free people are able to protect themselves. Um, and a lot of us began uh, helping out uh, public interest lawyers try to get better protection in those prisons and we're currently trying to help them get vaccines in those prisons. We, we just didn't quite understand what was happening. I was on the front line um, at Brookdale University Hospital Medical Center out in Brooklyn, in East New York, Brownsville, Brooklyn. I don't even think severe is a, is a word to describe how terribly um, what we were dealing with. My name is Dr. Arabia Molet. I am an emergency medicine physician, but you guys, you say in, <laughs> in layman terms, an ER doctor in both Brooklyn and the Bronx. I was born and raised in the Bronx, New York, uh, especially in the South Bronx, and then also part of my life um, in Brooklyn. I also lived in Cuba for many years. As a matter of fact, I completed my medical training back home in Cuba. I've I've gone through a lot in my life, um, experienced many, many hardships, and, and it has a lot to do why I'm here today as an ER doctor. Brookdale Hospital, Brookdale University Medical Center, is in East New York, Brooklyn, and it serves a community that does not get a lot of service, right? It's right. a wholly well, underserved community. It's a and you were- wholly underserved community. And I worked at St. Barnabas in the Bronx as well. So uh-huh. it, it was both hospitals that I, were, I was working at the same time and both mm-hmm. communities, whether you in the South Bronx or the Belmont area section of the, of, of the Bronx to East New York, Brownsville, were getting hit so bad. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it, was, it was traumatic. Brookdale was one of those medical institutions that sadly made the news because they also had to have temporary refrigerator truck morgues parked outside because the death toll increased so dramatically so quickly they needed that space to put the bodies in. I mean, you've you've been a doctor all over the world. Have you ever experienced a system stressed like this before? You know, when you go to different parts of the world, they have their own stresses as well. So it's very hard to compare when you go to places or when you go to countries around the world that are limited with their resources. And mm-hmm. that's a very that's a stress that is very unfortunate and is 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 not something that I would want anybody as a physician or as a nurse to to experience. 
Um, but I will say this though, it was what I, what I didn't appreciate was the victim blaming towards black and brown communities mm-hmm. um, at the height of the pandemic. You know, the first thing that people say oh, is because they have high diabetes and uh, diabetes and hypertension and they have all this, but you're not, it was a lot of victim blaming without recognizing why these, our communities were being impacted disproportionately by COVID-19. Once, you know, the word was out about how black and brown people were, were disproportion- disproportionately impacted, it really kind of felt like to me that United States of America kind of gave up on mm. our communities. All of a sudden, it was just like, oh, it's because they smoke in cigarettes. It's because of high crime. It's because they're poor. It's because they have diabetes and hypertension. It's because of this. And it was like the elephant was in the room. No, it, mm. it's not because of that. It's really more so because of systemic racism. And the term essential workers is kind of like, for me, I, 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 hate, I don't like the term because let's call it what it is. Black and brown people, when it comes down to these, a lot of these jobs, whether it be MTA or to working in a bodega or to working in a supermarket or even at the hospitals, for example, it's mainly black and brown people. And of course, they're going to be more exposed. Of course, the conditions are going to be even greater. And, and that, was the, that was the part that just really angered me throughout um, last year. Thankfully, the the, ring, the alarm was ringing, and and those of us who have been on the front line, especially uh, particularly black and brown doctors, who um, not only on the front line, who have been calling this out for many many years about racism in medicine, racism in our healthcare, and all COVID nineteen did really and truly re-expose again and again how ugly our healthcare system is and our socioeconomic system are is as well. So we've been talking throughout this series about lessons that were learned during this pandemic and and how people see an opportunity to reinvent their their sectors, their livelihoods, whether they are in the in the restaurant hospitality industry or or performing arts. Uh, and one of the things that they do say is to make their sectors, to make their uh, their areas of livelihood, to make those areas more equitable, more fair. Do you see the lessons being taken to heart in healthcare right now? And and what does the future look like after learning those lessons in healthcare? Something has to give. I don't have the answer. I don't know what that entails. I don't know what it it will take for this to get better, but I do know that something has to change. So what I'm saying today is not anything new. It's been talked about for so many years. So what do you see for the future of, of healthcare in New York after what we've, I mean, I, I want to say after what we've been through, but we're still in it. So it's kind of hard to, you know, put out the fire and also talk about what you're going to rebuild after the fire's out at, simultaneously, but you have to be thinking about that. So what do you see as the future for healthcare in New York? I mean, healthcare in New York is going to have to be the same throughout the United States, right? And I think the problem is here that we think very, uh, uh, like, individualistically. So, for example, what happens in New York, oh, it ain't got nothing to do with us in California. It has nothing to do with us in down south. We have to start thinking as a national family, okay? We really do. Um, Because what happened in New York definitely affected people in Chicago. And I had this conversation. It's funny. I had this conversation the other day with a friend of mine who's also a doctor. She's a surgeon in Chicago. And she said, while we were looking at what what was happening in New York, we did our best to prepare, right? 
to, in mm. Chicago, but it was still, the response was too late. And so the thing is, is that as far as healthcare in New York, I mean, I think I believe that my city could be, or my state overall could be the leader in, in making changes and in, in as far as healthcare um, and making sure that every citizen in our beloved city, as well as the uh, city of New York, as well as state of New York, to make sure that everyone has health, um, health insurance. But again, I don't know that is enough. You understand? Like I'm still mm-hmm. trying to sit down and figure out what is the next step. I'm still trying to figure out what are the possible solutions that we can come up with to actually help so many New Yorkers um, to make it through. So there's a number of lessons learned, right? Some very positive and some, you know, things that need to be changed. That's Dr. Stuart Kessler again. He heads the emergency department at Elmhurst Hospital in Queens. You know, on the positive side, we learned that, you know, we have an incredible staff of physicians and nurses and residents and PAs and MPs and ancillary who just put their own, the risk to their own health aside and work tirelessly and in what, you know, I've never been in a combat zone. I've never been in the armed services, but I can't imagine what that might be like, but I could, we could never have imagined this. So we, we saw the best of most people. That was great. You know, from the other perspective though, you know, we need a lot more in the way of funding for public health and, you know, disparities and, you know, it's, it's very difficult. You know, we offer a lot of services in the hospital, but it's a community that lives closely packed together the people that, you know, needed to continue to earn money had to keep going out in, in the community and, and trying to work and put them at risk. I think the nation as a whole wasn't prepared for anything like this as far as um, being prepared with enough, you know, there were, there were concerns, although we never got to that point. There were concerns that we have enough of the resources we needed. Does the country have enough of the resources we needed? Um, you know, I, I think you know, testing was a huge issue at the beginning of this, not having enough tests to be able to differentiate one pro- disease process from another, to be able to treat people, you know, initially and, and quickly. So I think there, you know, it, it shows that there's a need for more in the way of public health and epidemiology and looking at the socioeconomic determinants of health. And I think that's the lesson we hope people don't forget. And also the idea that you know, this may not be the only pandemic we see, and we should be better prepared for the next potential pandemic and have more resources available and for us. We have seen uh, that the, the government groups that are, are managing the crisis right now, uh, we, they're preparing for what that future means and, and thinking about the lessons learned from this. But it's a little difficult to have that perspective right now because we really are still in the thick of it. Dr. David Rich, President and Chief Operating Officer at Mount Sinai Hospital. You're one of the most well-known hospital systems in in the Northeast here, and you're alongside some other very well-known hospital systems. Is there now a, a renewed effort to better prepare healthcare here in New York for another pandemic situation like the one we faced, like, like the peak we faced back in, in April of 2020? The challenge will be at the city, the state, and the federal level to take organizations that are already dedicated to emergency preparedness, uh, such as at the federal level, the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Readiness, 
of Health and Human Services, uh, and have organizations like that, government uh, arms of that nature, uh, develop more effective plans for not just pandemic preparedness, but for other uh, concerns such as bioterrorism. Mm -hmm. And in that level of preparation, uh, uh, it doesn't happen without commitment of resources. We have planning groups at the state level, planning groups at the city level. We have to commit in the future to fund these organizations or these government arms so that they have the resources to really get us prepared, whether that's another pandemic or bioterrorism or some other concern. If we're going to be prepared, that takes thought, that takes planning, and that means that people have to make this their job. And those people, of course, need to be paid. And the planning requires things such as drilling. Uh, sometimes you have to prepare uh, facilities. For example, you might have uh, an expansion of what the military prepared, which are rapidly deployable medical facilities. And so what will our future dedication be to uh, preparedness and readiness? I think that's the big question. But my hope is that uh, with this pandemic as, uh, you know, obviously a defining moment of our time, that we will rethink our priorities and, uh, and create the resources that are necessary to be prepared for the future. The hardest things and the lessons learned. I mean, there's, there's a couple of things from a, a high-level perspective, I think, that we can do just as a society to, to be prepared. Back at the Brooklyn Hospital Center, Vice President of Operations John Ferrara is looking toward the future. A lot of that surrounded around supply chains and, and breaks in that. I mean, that was probably one of the hardest parts of this whole ordeal is to, to sit people that are, are willing to go out there and risk themselves and, and not have adequate levels of supplies and PPE to give them because our supply chains were so disrupted. Uh, I think that we have an opportunity to make sure that we manufacture a certain amount of protective equipment or, or medication that we need domestically. That might be a good opportunity. I mean, we've never had to, to deal with anything like that and we've always established par levels based on normal run rates of normal operations. Um, when it comes to a point where we needed that much, I mean we were, we were burning through gowns and gloves and masks and rightfully so at a rate that was unbelievable and as you start seeing these patients start lining up around the block and coming in so sick, I don't think anybody could have been prepared for that. However, this time around, we are. We have a stockpile. We were able to, to look at some of lessons learned, and particularly inside our emergency department, while construction was going on, our senior leaders and administration stopped construction, looked at some opportunities, and we were able to include uh, isolation rooms and things that we felt like we didn't have enough of during this. So as something happens again, we can not only look at our lessons learned as far as PPE stockpile, but also things as far as uh, being able to accommodate inside the emergency department, which I think will be very helpful. There's a lot of uh, complexities that come along with that, but I'm also extremely comfortable and confident that we are much better prepared these days for anything that comes our way than we've ever been before. So I think, I think the Roaring Twenties are coming back around here. I think that uh, the people in New York City are, are far tougher than, than people give them credit for. I think that we're gonna be here to facilitate all their needs. And I think that, uh, as I said before, when this is over, we're going to see an influx of people that are ready to get back to giving the life to New York City that, that we're accustomed to. Apparently the birds agree. They're singing a song for you. We'll, we'll take that. We'll certainly take that. You know, we're going to get through this. Just like that 91-year-old patient that we discharged home.
she got through it. So if she didn't give up, we shouldn't give up. That's Mount Sinai critical care nurse Ruth Levy. We need to keep going because this is our community. We need to keep going because that's who we are. We're New Yorkers. We don't, we don't give up just because something got in the way. We, we, we just keep going. And I feel like, yes, this is a terrible thing that we all went through. But at the same time, because we went through it, we're stronger because of it. We're still here. We're resilient. Um, and we're going to make it through this. You just have to hang in there. While New Yorkers were getting vaccinated at increasing rates every day and the outlook for the future was hopeful, doctors and nurses at the city's hospitals were still very much on the front lines in a war against a virus that was changing and still killing people. The long-lasting impacts of the pandemic on the healthcare system will be unfolding for years to come. As the pandemic forced hospitals to pivot, many individual New Yorkers had to pivot as well in order to survive in this city. In the next episode of New York Gritty. So it grew into a business with how many orders you're doing now? About 130 a week. But yeah, I've been selling out every week for a year. I don't want to say that this pandemic is a blessing, but for me it was. It helped me get out and really focus on who do I want to be as a person? Am I a slave forever, uh, stuck in this cubicle? Follow New York Gritty on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Rate and review us as well. Check out the website for more on the city's recovery from the pandemic, nygritty.com. And send me an email if you have a story about how you're getting by during this tough time, steve at nygritty.com. Follow New York Gritty on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for details on upcoming episodes and more information about the impact of the pandemic here. I'm Steve Kastenbaum. Thanks for listening.